Welcome back. You're listening to the Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick, and we're thieves. That is, beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater. But we didn't just do theater. We did guerrilla conceptual art projects, or what we call parathac. Para, I have such a hard time with that word sometimes. Paratheatrical work. <laughs> Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which means we just like putting sticks in the anthills and watching the ants scurry around and adjust to their new reality, their new status quo. The last episode, we outlined part of our trip out west. Uh, we had left the teepee, the year-old memorial now, under the care of the residents living on the hill. Mm -hmm. We were worried about how that was going to turn out, especially with all the changes that had taken place. So, I mean, in some ways, essentially, we were leaving the care of it with uh, Spencer, the drug lord, right? I mean, Well, no. I mean, we were counting on the residents, who were practically our family now, to mm. take care of it, take yeah. care of their church. Yeah, right? but they also had allowed Panama and the drugs to come in. So what anything could have happened. They could have started using the TP as a place to sell mm. sell drugs or something. Like. Nah, nah. That 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 would have been really stupid on Spencer's part. Uh, he knew that if he did that, we would just take the TP down, and he right. was not stupid. Besides that, that TP being there, much to our chagrin, was to his advantage. Well, yeah. That's how we were complicit. In some yeah yeah and I mean along with him claiming he was a doctor he also was claiming that he really supported what we were doing yeah and you know you had to believe what he was saying he said it so senior it, well it was he was sincere. a very intelligent man Spencer right and so like you said it was a uh, complicated he was complicated and it complicated our position up there so uh, I mean I don't know why we weren't fighting it except sort of covertly by bringing all the cameras and stuff up well, we thought we, we were fighting it we were trying to fight it well trying with to get art yeah well with art and trying to tell in, involving everybody yes. in the art project and guess what nobody else was fighting it either and we'll get into that too everybody knew what was going okay. on okay yeah we on will hill, next episode right? okay yeah. uh but also uh, going out west was our attempt to try to figure out how to leave the hill and all these complications, right? right? And by visiting Wounded Knee and, and uh, this Pine Ridge Reservation, the site of the massacre, we were hoping naively, I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, that we'd be able to hopefully gift the teepee to the Lakota tribe or somebody, anyone who was in a better position to to represent the dead who the teepee was memorializing and most importantly maybe we wanted to bring it to the land the earth where it truly belonged which is the land of the lakota right and then throughout the trip we were checking our our phone machine um where we had asked friends from outside the hill to go up and check on the teepee and the situation and make everything was okay. And when we checked messages, we got messages that said it was okay. So we yeah. were. So last episode, we left off in Reno, where we had met up with John and Annie. And after that, we drove the Pony Express 
road and we visited the Buffalo Bill Museum. Uh, in episode three, we talked about how important Buffalo Bill was to us, uh, his paratheatrical work, the ultimate maybe, is what inspired us so greatly. And remarkably, along with all of the other legendary accomplishments, Another story has it that the young William F. Cody, at the age of 16, also rode the longest Pony Express ride. You know, the Pony Express didn't last very long, uh, but it has a very storied place in American history. He supposedly rode nonstop for 300 miles when some of the other relay uh, riders right. fell away, right? And then after that, we, uh, we headed from there back to South Dakota in the Black Hills. Uh, and we stopped to see the ancient uh, petroglyphs mm -hmm. that were all around, including the one that Leola had told us uh, about. It was uh, Eagle's Point, and it was a circle with a cross in it. Uh, oh. Right? Yes, a, a, a circle with like a plus sign inside it, which is also the basis of the swastika, of course. Um, it's a very ancient symbol. You see it in a lot of different cultures. We saw it a lot, for instance, when we visited India. You see right. it all over the place there. And, of course, the Nazis appropriated it, right? Yeah, so back in the Black Hills on Christmas Day, we hiked up Harney's Peak. Which is also known as Eagle's Point. Oh, which was renamed as Black Elk Peak in, I think, 2016. Yes, and this is where Black Elk had his vision. He called it the center of the earth. And Black Elk Peak is the highest point east of the Continental Divide. Yes. So uh, on the way up there, there was a wolf that crossed our path. We thought it was a dog at first, yeah. and I whistled, and then we saw it was a wolf, but it just turned its head and just... <laughs> Moseyed on. Yes, and then at the end of the trail, meaning, you know, at the end of our hike, at the big, back at the beginning of the trail, yeah. we saw a herd of like eight deer that, that were like 10 feet away from us. I guess they were so used to people, but it yeah. was it was a really magical Christmas Yeah, day. it was crazy because it was like uh, un, unseasonably like 50 degrees or something yeah. and sun, sunny and everything. Yeah. And of course, the landscape itself was just breathtaking. It just right. was, uh, it was an amazing day. Okay, so about the Wounded Knee Massacre. It marked the symbolic end of what were called the Indian Wars that had been going on for centuries. There were actually more wars. There were the Apache Wars as late as 1924, which always fascinated me because to me, 1924 is the modern era, right? Yeah. Their films were already being made, but there were still Indian Wars going on. But it's the Wounded Knee Massacre that, if not officially, but emblematically, uh, brought those wars to a close because of what it represented. The, the Native American genocide seemed complete, right? Right. And there's a lot to be said about the mass massacre. It's a devastating story, and, and we're only going to give the broad strokes here, uh, the context in which our teepee was memorializing, yes. how, what we were trying to memorialize. So we feel the need to give you what the Wounded Knee Massacre was, right? So in, in 1869, the Treaty of Fort Laramie established a 60 million acre Great Sioux Reservation, it was called. Uh, the agreement was that if the Lakota stayed on the reservation and refrained from attacking white settlers, that they would be provided with food, with education, other gov government-funded benefits. 
But then gold was discovered mm. in the Black Hills, right? And all bets were off. You know, it was another of one of the many, many treaties that the American government broke with Native Americans. The land was strip mined. The one great Sioux reservation was split up into six different smaller ones. And then in 1889, Congress slashed the annual Lakota food rations. And that combined with a harsh winter and a severe drought and the fact that the land itself was never really arable. The buffalo were all gone now, mm. right? And, uh, you know, it pushed the tribe to the brink of starvation. Which then, of course, was fertile ground for this ghost dance religion to take hold in Pine Ridge. Yeah, and this uh, ghost dance ritual that they were doing uh, really scared the whites. For example, the agents from the Bureau of uh, Indian Affairs asked for more military reinforcements, and this just heightened the tensions. Even more, yeah. yeah. So then on December 29th, 1890, there was a scuffle at Wounded Knee Creek where the Lakota had set up their, their teepee. Supposedly, the army was trying to confiscate their weapons, and there was a deaf Lakota warrior who wasn't following instructions, and a shot accidentally uh, went off, and that's when the army gave orders to fire. Yeah, and by the time it was over, there were 153 Lakota dead, mostly women and children. Yes. And just as many more injured. And, you know, the exact numbers are never really calculated on that. But Yeah, well, they vary from different sources. But the massacre was initially referred to as the Battle of Wounded Knee. American Indians hated that, of course, that description. And they referred to it as the Massacre at Wounded Knee. The location of the conflict is officially known as the Wounded Knee Battlefield, and the U.S. Army currently refers to it as just Wounded Knee, all this to say that the designation of what happened is its own kind of battlefield. Right, and the signs, look at the signs. The, for instance, the Battle of Wounded Knee sign, you can't really find, even though there's all kind of history sites, PBS, everybody does a little section on... Uh, yeah, this is really weird. Yeah, you know, the Wounded Knee Massacre. The sign, the Battle of Wounded Knee, you, you can only find one photograph of that, and it shows the sign with the word battle graffitied over with the word massacre. And the photo was taken in 1972 or 73 when the siege was going on. Yes, and that's the, the only second sign. wounded right, knee, right. right? And that's the only thing we could find. Is It's, it's right. the strangest thing. Um, all right, so uh, the Black Hills to this day are considered holy land by the Lakota. They do not believe uh, in land bridges. They believe they originated in the Black Hills. You know, none of this about North America being populated by Asians walking across the Bering Straits, uh, which is sort of the commonly held theory. No, the Lakota were born in the Black Hills. Yes, and, and of course they felt like their holy land was being desecrated by the whites. Uh, it would be like some foreign culture going in, taking over, strip mining Jerusalem, right? And it wasn't until 1980 that the U.S. government agreed that the lands were illegally taken and they offered the Lakota reparations, but they refused the settlement. Right, and the money was put into an interest-bearing account and uh, 
I think in 2015 it was worth, what, $1.2 billion or something like that. But the Lakota, they want the land back. They don't want uh, money. Yeah. So during our road trip, we stayed in the Black Hills at the historic Franklin Hotel in Deadwood, South Dakota. Mm. Uh, Pine Ridge from there was a five-hour round-trip excursion from Deadwood. Um, So it was an all-day thing when we visited Pine Ridge, but it was convenient for our exploration of the Black Hills. And one of those explorations took us to the Crazy Horse Monument. And I just want to say, I I said this the last time, but there was no GPS, there was no Google, so we didn't know about this. Yeah, and it wasn't really on tourist uh, brochures and stuff at that time. No, not yet. It was in a very early stage. Well, not that early, as we'll we'll find out. (laughs) I mean, because it was in 1939. Compared to now, I mean. Right. But it began in 1939 when this Polish-American sculptor named uh, Korczak Dzukowski. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> he had won first prize at the New York, uh, the not the New York, the, <laughs> yeah, the 1939 World's oh, Fair. Oh, World's Fair, yes, New York. It, which was in New yeah, York, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the fame he got from this, uh, and he also knew the Black Hills very well, but it prompted a few Lakota chiefs, including Chief Henry Standing Bear, who was a uh, maternal cousin of Crazy Horse, to petition Korczak to make a a monument honoring Crazy Horse. Mm -hmm. Standing Bear wrote to Korczak and said, uh, my fellow chiefs and I would like the white man to know the red man has great heroes too. So after meeting with the chiefs, Korchuk agreed, and he began searching for a suitable mountain for the sculpture. He thought the Wyoming Tetons would be the best choice because the rock would be better for carving, but the Lakota wanted it in their sacred Black Hills on this 600-foot-high mountain. Right, and and the monument, when completed, is expected to be the world's largest mountain carving. Mm Mm-hmm. It'll be 563 feet high and 641 feet long. He's got models of it that he's made all over. And uh, Crazy Horse's head, which is uh, completed right now, is large enough to contain all All of Mount Rushmore. (laughs) It's mind-boggling. All the 60... Just his head, Crazy Horse's head. Yeah, so all the four presidents, uh, 60-foot-high heads will fit inside Crazy Horse's head. Which it's, is cool. <laughs> it's, 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 it's nuts. Come on. The whole thing is just, yeah. I don't know. Um, especially the way this started, right? This lone little Polish sculptor started right. hammering away by himself at the mountain. And uh, his goal was to carve an image of Crazy Horse sitting on his horse with an arm, one arm outstretched right in front of him. And then afterwards, when it was all done... He wanted to build a university for Native Americans on the site. Yeah, and I guess paradoxically... uh, You think? (laughs) No one knows what Crazy Horse looked like. Yes, no one knows. Right. He thought that a photograph would steal your soul, so he never allowed any photographs of him. So I I don't know. What did Korchuk... Where did he get the image of Crazy Horse yeah, in his from his ima- imagination, I guess, right? right. right? Anyway, he was, uh, he was already in his 40s when he began carving the mountain. Uh, and he married one of the volunteers that was working with him. And that marriage produced 10 children 
who were all born in a small cabin where on the site. Yeah, what's also amazing, he didn't think he could have kids because he had a, a previous marriage. marriage. Right, right. Yeah, and, and he figured when he started that it would probably be at least three generations before the mountain was even carved, so his kids would have to finish it, especially because the funding came only from the visitor center where the public pays admission and buys trinkets and stuff, and, and you know, so it would be slow going. Yeah, not just his kids, but his kids' kids. Three generations yeah. he was counting on. Yeah. So good thing he had 10 kids. But, <laughs> uh, you know, he was a firm believer in the free enterprise system yeah. and against any, any kind of government funding. Uh, to this day, the family turns down sometimes pretty sizable amounts, $10 million in one case. Yeah. So as not to be holding to uh, Washington or anybody yes, else. Yes, Washington, right? You don't want to be in bed with Washington on a project like this. With Native yeah. Americans, you know, the genocide. Yeah, right. Um, Obvious reasons, right? Anyway, when we first got to the visitor center, yeah. uh, we met Jay. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Jay was a Bronx-born Jew, uh, former a retired UPS driver. Right. And he decided to dedicate his life to Korchuk's vision and to his oldest daughter, Dawn. Mm -hmm. And we spoke to Dawn and Jay for a long time uh, about each other's work. And we were each very excited uh, of how much we had in common. One of the things being, of course, four white people creating monuments, uh, memorials to the Lakota. And the intention behind both of our missions was very similar. Right. Yeah, right. At the, uh, at the ex first explosion at the mountain, uh, Korchak, of course, dedicated to Native Americans. Uh, he said, I want a little bit of the wrong that they did to these people corrected, right? Yes. So we, of course, could relate to that. Then we went back to visit Wounded Knee, um, and we brought up Crazy Horse Mountain to Leola and Percy. And Leola rejected it outright. Yeah, she saw it as not an honor, but a dishonor and a further desecration to the Black Hills. Yep. What was surprising, though, was that Percy had exactly the opposite view. And it, they voiced like a short kind of, well, it was a friendly argument, but a short argument in front of us. Right. Um, and overall, like I'm not sure about back then, back in 1991, but now the Lakota Nation is equally divided on it. Those opposed to the memorial argue that a man that was so adamantly against having his picture taken, even captured on film, would not want a likeness of himself sprawled across the face of a sacred mountain. And the fact that he wished to be buried in an undisclosed grave to them is proof of that. Right. I mean, however, there's a lot of many Native Americans who love the monument, Percy, of course, being one. They love its scale and its kind of brazen affront to the symbolism that is part of uh, Mount Rushmore. Yes. Very close. Mount Rushmore is only 16 miles away. So um, you can see both sides for right. sure. And they love the way that the Crazy Horse Memorial stakes its claim on American history, almost as a counterpoint to Mount Rushmore and the heads of the white fathers of democracy, you know, that's nearby. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it's going to be 
when it's completed, the largest mountain carving in the world. Exactly. So it's interesting to note, by the way, uh, the history of the carving of Mount Rushmore. I had no idea about any of this. Yeah. It's uh, incredible. Um, it was originally envisioned as an ode to the Old West. Uh, it was supposed to be carvings of pioneers, of Native Americans, uh, like historic figures like Lewis and Clark and their Indian guide, Sacagawea. Uh, but then the sculptor that was hired, Gutzon Borglum, rejected this design. And it was his vision that was going to transform it into what the mountain is today. Right. And to put this uh, sculpture and his vision. Sculptor. Yeah. Sculptor <laughs> and vision into, uh, you know, a context. Just a year before, he was working on another project. Yes. Another gigantic, vast sculpture that was uh, being carved in Stone Mountain. And he had been... Outside of Atlanta. This right. is Georgia. Yeah. And he had been commissioned by the United Daughters of the Confederacy to do this. And it was being funded by the Ku Klux Klan. Yes. All this came about because in 1915 was uh, the film... Uh, the Birth, Birth of the Nation. Right. That sort of revitalized Ku Klux Klan. Yes. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan at that time were having their rituals and everything else at Stone Mountain. So, I mean, the site was yeah, laden and, and with... And were they in decline until the Birth oh, yeah. of the Nation came yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was, uh, you know, that was America's first blockbuster. And the white people in Atlanta just flocked to that show. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was said that a quarter of the population of white people in Atlanta went and saw that show. Oh, my God. It was just, you know, incredible. But, yeah... It, so, you know, you got the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Ku Klux Klan. It's debated on whether uh, Burglum became a Klan member or not. He's listed on some of the charters and stuff. but a they A Klan member? A yeah, yeah, a Ku Klux Klan member. Yeah. But in any case, that's how he was built. Well, he was definitely sympathetic. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Stone Mountain in its natural self is the largest exposed granite outcrop in the world. Mm hmm you know, so a natural wonder by itself. But now it's going to be turned into a Confederate monument. Mm -hmm. And um, just before he got hired by um, Rushmore, he started carving that. And uh, that was in 1923. I think Rushmore started, he got hired in 24, mm -hmm. 1924. And um, actually, the carving, he got fired from it eventually. Or he went on to move to Rushmore. It started out as just being Robert E. Lee, right? Right. And then they sandblasted that away. They sandblasted <laughs> away. Two other designers came in. Fifty years later, in 1972, only in 1972 was it completed, and it depicts three Confederate Civil War figures on horseback. Uh, there's President Jefferson Davis and the generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. So Lee made it up there after all. Yeah, he did. He's on <laughs> horseback now, and it w it's not just him, right? Yeah. So, you know, you can see how, um, especially today, this, this uh, Stone Mountain carving, the park itself is protected by uh, state law. So you see all these other Confederate so, uh Monuments being taken down. Yeah, this is... It's very complicated, right? Because the Daughters of... What were they called? The Daughters of the Revolution? No, no. no the United <laughs> Daughters of the Confederacy. Confederacy, right. 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 Yeah, they're, they're to they, they come out with a statement now today with all these uh, monuments coming down, statues coming down, that they're against any kind of hate groups or white supremacy Appropriating groups. these monuments and for their purposes. And uh, it's, they give a somewhat, I, I think, uh, whatever statement saying that 
they want to honor their ancestors. Yes. Their fathers, their, you know. Yes. I, I mean. And honestly, I can relate to that. Right. As a German who dearly loved her grandfather, who was a soldier in World War II. Not a Nazi. Not a Nazi, but a conscripted soldier. I, when I moved to this country, I always hated it when people automatically assumed he was a Nazi and evil. He was the man that meant most to me. So if you uh, extrapolate that to these people just wanting to honor, because if you think about it, the Civil War was not that long ago. It was not that long ago. Right, right. The, 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 and, and, and how many? 600,000 people died? Something right, like that? Uh, but it's so, any case, this idea of memorializing your ancestors, memorializing the dead. I mean, how did we build this memorial? It was, it was for the Wounded Knee Massacre. Yes. The people who had died there. But it was also, we were bringing everything of ourselves in there, too. Yes, our own memory, our own memorials. Right, right. right. And I, I think if you look at these three large memorials, I mean, the Stone Mountain carving is bigger. I think it's three acres. It's bigger than Mount Rushmore, Yes. this Confederate monument. If you look at these three, all of them are saying these people are heroes, right? Yeah. I mean, Crazy Horse and then the four presidents and then two of whom were slave owners right I but mean, it gets complicated yeah monuments will come and go yes depending on who believes their ancestors is more whatever and anytime you make anything that definitive it's going to divide people right and so well that's memorials right right and but anyway Burglum's vision yeah. was coming out of this shrine of the south and he said something in incredible about what he thought the vision of Rushmore should be, yes. which is he said it should be an unambiguous symbol of male manifest destiny. That is a direct quote. Yeah. An unambiguous symbol of male manifest destiny. That's so, saying a lot. I think somebody had wanted to put Susan B. Anthony up there or something, right? But it, it's going to be male. Yes. And it's going to be about manifest destiny. So that's yeah, so no Sacagawea, no Susan B. Right. Anthony. No. no, Jefferson, because he bought the Louisiana Purchase and expanded uh, the country by doubled it, right? Mm -hmm. And Washington, of course, is the beginner. And then, you know, even Lincoln supported, uh, I don't know, I forget exactly what it is, right. but uh, in some kind of thing, taking over Native American right. land. Right, some people want to cancel Lincoln. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's mind-boggling how complicated all of this yeah, right. gets, right? Including on our tiny little scale of us putting up a memorial, right, for... Right, yeah, but I mean, if you think back about the original design, of, of Rushmore, where Sachizawea and other Native Americans were supposed to be depicted there, including a Red Cloud, right? Mm -hmm. And now it's turned into this Manifest Destiny thing. Yes. Right. So the fathers of white fathers of democracy. Right. So it's... Oh, the white fathers of Manifest Destiny. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, right. But uh, so Crazy Horse Mountain really would or really does sit as a, a complete... Stark counterpoint to these. Yes, a gigantic, right. all-consuming of Mount Rushmore stark counterpoint. So you right. could see why 
uh, Native, some Native Americans wanted, wanted it, right? Yeah. So uh, we met Jay and Don for dinner at Deadwood and continued our initial conversation, and it was really lively and really rewarding. Uh, we And at that time, we brought up the Iroquois notion of seventh generation, the seventh generation principle, it's something that we were pretty versed in through all of the research, meanwhile, that we had done, but uh, they did not seem to be that familiar with it. And we brought it up because we felt like it applied to them, planning something for generations down the line. So they, right, we felt like it was a perfect depiction of what they were doing. Right, and the principle is based on an ancient Iroquois philosophy where our actions should not be judged by their immediate effect today, but their effect on the seventh generation. And this this philosophy is I've been watered down or marketed. It, it, somebody stole the seventh generation, branded it. You know, yeah, it's now dish and soap and everything sold else. Sold in plastic bottles. Yeah. <laughs> and green and But I mean the principle is still there. Yeah, I well everybody it. knows about it now. Let's put it that way. You know, it was first recorded this seventh generation principle back anywhere from 1142 to 1500 AD is where they placed it. And it goes back to the writings of the great law of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And it's credited with influencing the American Constitution, of all things, because Benjamin Franklin had great respect for the Haudenosaunee system of government. And, of course, the Iroquois Confederacy was like, what, six different... Well, five and then six nations. Yeah, so it was extremely successful. Yeah, you could see the comparison to the 13 colonies, you know, trying to bring them together, right? And and keep them together. So it's Mm -hmm. no wonder that Franklin took a close look at this. But it's interesting to think that the Constitution in the United States is not founded on principles of European governments, but of people that they, at that point, considered, quote, savages. Yeah, so Don and Jay just loved the fact that we were comparing the seventh generation principle to their work on Crazy Horse. Back then, there was the idea that Korchuk had, which was to build a Native American school, but it still hadn't come about when we were there in 1991. But then 20 years later, in 2010, we looked it up recently, Mm -hmm. they started the um, Indian University of um, North America. Mm -hmm. And their first program was a summer program called Seventh Gen. And uh, we like to think that our conversation back then was the instigator in some way of it. Yeah, it's probably. Well, I mean, they were so excited about it. We'd like to think of that. Well, they were very excited to hear about it. I mean, they hadn't heard about it, it seemed like to us. Right, right. right. Um, And Dawn told us not just about the history of the mountain, but she told us like some personal family stories, which were really fun. Uh, Her father's first marriage fell apart because apparently his first wife thought he was spending too much time doing this mountain. She didn't appreciate that, right? So, And she couldn't give him any children, so maybe that's part of it. That's part of it probably too, right? And in 1950, he then married Ruth Ross, uh, that volunteer that we had talked about earlier, and she was 18 years his junior. Right. And... They got married on Thanksgiving Day. Yes. So they wouldn't interrupt any of the work. <laughs> yes, they on got, a holiday. Because right. you can't take any time out, not right. even for a wedding. And Ruth uh, told the press at one time that Korchuk had informed her 
that uh, the mountain would be first, she'd be second, and the children would be third. <laughs> children third, right? And she, she said that's why, you can see why we had so many children too, because the boys were expected then to be working on the mountain, and the girls were going to be working the visitor center. Yeah, and the yeah, center. God bless Ruth, boy. The yeah. mountain first, her second, and her kids third. Right. <laughs> um, the morning before we left to drive back to New York, so this was now December 29th, the anniversary of the massacre. We stopped one more time at Crazy Horse, and Jay ceremoniously presented us with a rock, a fragment uh, from the blast of Crazy Horse Memorial. And we felt very honored by this gift, and all of us expressed fervent hope of seeing each other again. And th this stone became important to us to keep and becomes part of this story later. Right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, after that, we drove down to the Pine Ridge Reservation and we picked up Bernard, or Shorty. As yeah, he, he says, call me Shorty. Right. <laughs> and he was walking <laughs> the 40 miles or so to Manderson to go to a wake. Of course, he knew, like we saw all the time and heard that they just pick up people. You start walking and somebody would pick you up, right? Mm -hmm. And we told him a little but bit about ourselves. We gave him the postcard of the teepee. And uh, he told us about, um, well, he started reminiscing about the 73 siege. And he showed us some points of interest, including a short path to the site where the siege took place. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and along the way, it was really uh, stunning. We saw some uh, Chief Bigfoot Band memorial riders on horseback. Uh, what that's all about is after Sitting Bull was killed with two weeks before the Wounded Knee Massacre, Chief Bigfoot fled Standing Rock Reservation and went to Pine Ridge only to die in the massacre. And every year on the anniversary, people take a memorial horseback ride along that same route that uh, Chief Bigfoot took. And um, and then we dropped Shorty off at the church, and he waved a, a very confused but heartfelt goodbye. Of course, he didn't know what to make of us. Yeah. And then we drove back to the massacre site and uh, went out near the creek there, the Wounded Knee Creek, and we carved and painted some beads we had bought in Rad Rapid City. We used the water from the Wounded Knee Creek to thin the paint. Mm -hmm. Then we strung the beads together on some rawhide, I mean, we deliberately chose the site and the anniversary of the massacre to make these necklaces. Uh, and we completed this ritual right at dusk. Right? right, yeah. And then we had one bead left over, which we threw ceremoniously into the creek, an offering, but maybe more than that, maybe an entreaty to the waters, to the land, to the dead buried there at Wounded Knee, to please accept our memorial and endow the necklaces with the power of that acceptance. Right. Uh, we were talking to the dead because the living had rejected the memorial. Yeah. I mean, at least Leola had. Leola at just some point, we had said we wanted to come back and gift it. And yeah. she just rejected it outright, which yeah. was stab in the heart <laughs> yeah right i mean that was the main thing we went on the trip and everything so we were coming back with the necklaces and there was some kind of acceptance uh, anyway that's what we were hoping was coming out of it yeah um, and then you know driving down the road um on the there was a radio program commemorating the 101st anniversary of the massacre and right. we listened to that right right so 
There's just one more story that I want to tell. It comes off of Leola's rejection, but it's going to figure prominently down the line a little bit. Uh, and it still haunts me to this day. On December 23rd, so two days before Christmas, Nick wanted to walk the Wounded Knee Creek, but I decided to look up Leola one more time by myself. Uh, she was pretty suspicious of us when we first got there, uh, especially of me. And I felt like she just kept look, looking at me sideways and uh, looking at me, you know, askance. And she didn't like the fact that I was German. <laughs> Although she did talk about then. Oh, yeah. She said uh, she had a German visitor. Uh, who was who, learning the Lakota language. And she was very, uh, whatever, proud of that or saying yeah. that was cool. There's Germans, too, that learned the Lakota language that aren't Nazis like you. Like me. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's how I felt. Right, you exactly. got that vibe too, right? Right. Yeah. But I felt like I threatened her as a woman, that I angered her as a white person, and of course really annoyed her with our purpose, right? What could a white woman know about wounded knee and teepees and Lakota? So I felt really self-conscious right from the start. And I guess I thought I could fix that, change her mind about me. So I went back. Well, big mistake. First of all, Nick and I are not pot smokers, but... She and I got high on some weed that Annie and John had given us to give to Leola when we went back, uh, when we had met them in Reno, right? And it made her super comfortable, but it made me completely paranoid. First, also, I felt like she kept looking at my hand, at this diamond ring I was wearing, which I'm conflicted about, too. Uh, it was a present from Nick spurred on not organically by Nick, not even remotely, right? Uh, or even by me back then. But it's... No, no, I gave it to you at, uh, I remember when I gave it to you in Niagara Falls, right early when we had met, saying, I'm going to marry you someday. Yes, you, and, you know, proposed to me on one knee at Niagara Falls. It was right, very the romantic. Way you're, yeah, right? The way you're it's supposed what, to do it, it, right. Especially when you come from working class Middle America, right. it's a way of signaling to the woman's parents the seriousness of a man's intentions, right? Engagement. So we did that whole ritual. So I had my little diamond ring, and then I had our little rental car, which was shiny and bright and new, of course, as rental cars are. It was only a Geo. It wasn't exactly... Uh, but anyway, uh, in those surroundings, it felt like it was just highlighting the poverty and the subjugation that was so palpable all over the reservation. In any case, I just felt asinine, like an ugly American, right? I felt dilettante. I felt really stupid. And of course, mostly I was high and paranoid. And I wanted so much for Leola, if not to sanction what we were doing, but to at least appreciate the sincerity of our intentions. And I wanted to learn from her. She is the foremost expert uh, authority on Lakota issues, and she has this fascinating background. Uh, she was a member of AIM during the occupation in 73. She was wanted by the FBI for a while. She believed that the spirits rendered her and her husband invisible during that time so that they would be protected. Anyway, there was so much to learn, and I tried too hard, I guess, to change her mind about me, she had made up her mind about me, and it just backfired. Uh, 
and also I was in her territory with her large family, and I think there were some friends there too. So I felt trapped. Uh, I ended up leaving uh, sad and humiliated, and she made no effort whatsoever to change that. She didn't care whether I came or went. Right. I mean, it was kind of raw back then. I think you're relating how you felt back then. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you feel now about it? I mean, because... Well, yeah, I mean... I mean we're, we're now looking at all this 30 years later. Trying to come to terms with it all. Right, right. and what it meant to us, yeah. right? Well, uh, for one thing, lesson number one is if you're trying to have meaningful conversations with somebody on sensitive topics, don't get high. Also, it just put this searing hot spotlight on my own misgivings about what we were doing. Um, she was skeptical, right, with good reason. But the thing that devastated me is that I saw no credible way of defending myself. I had no sense of self at all. I was just like, uh, uh, okay, okay, yeah. I guess everything I'm doing is stupid and disrespectful of you and yeah. And, and, and that's a thing that was so devastating to me. And no, not today, not today. Anyway, the, I, the, next, the next day was gonna be Christmas Eve. Uh, we drove back to Wounded Knee, those 300 miles round trip from Deadwood and we had bought some presents for kids that we had wrapped and we, we dropped them off on Leola's porch without knocking or anything and uh, hoping mm. that it made her happy and not even more annoyed, right? Right, I mean, you, we weren't gonna see her again, I don't think, no. No, no. no not right. under these circumstances. Right. Um, and then, uh, we pulled over in the prairie. Do you mm. remember that? Yeah. And we walked hand in hand in complete and utter darkness because there's no man-made light anywhere nearby under the stars directly towards a howling coyote. And that felt like an omen. It was, yes, very ominous. And I will never forget it because of that. And thinking back now, uh, the trip was kind of the beginning of the unraveling of our center. And from there on out, things kept going south on the hill. It, right. It, I mean, next episode, I think we'll be, well, we will be examining this kind of unraveling you're talking about. But we'd like to end this episode with a quote from uh, Black Elk, the medicine man. He witnessed Wounded Knee. And uh, this is a quote from his autobiography, Black Elk Speaks. Uh, it's a poignant summary of what the implications of this event was on the tribe as yes, a whole. Yes, and an appropriate way to end this episode. Yeah. He said, I did not know then how much was ended. When I look back now from this high hill of my old age, I can still see the butchered women and children lying heaped and scattered all along the crooked gulch, as plain as when I saw them with eyes still young. And I can see that something else died there in the bloody mud and was buried in the blizzard. A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. And I, to whom so great a vision was given in my youth, you see me now, a pitiful old man who has done nothing. For the nation's hoop is broken and scattered. There is no center any longer, and the sacred tree is dead. Yeah. <clears throat>
As always, feel free to write us on this or any topic at podcast at thiefstheater.org. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, thank you for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you'd like what you hear, uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and click the bell so you know when the next episode is coming out. Yes, and check out our website at thiefstheater with an re.org and follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T I P I on the Hill. Thanks for listening, everybody. Till next time. See you next time.